Hello and welcome to episode four of the Solved Saturday series on the TCC podcast, The True Crime Chronicles. I am Lindsay. Today's episode of Solved Saturday is a pretty big case and it was back in the media in March of this year. So we're going to talk about the murder of Tyre Rada. And not just her murder, but the corruption and blatant illegality on the part of the prosecution, which finally got national attention after a documentary was put out exposing the misjustice and who, in all likelihood, the real killer is. Now, there was so much information in this case. I tried to put in as much as I could. It is going to be split into two parts and I'm working on a bonus episode just on AK. So if you're not familiar with the case and don't know who AK is or the Kravchenko name, you definitely will by the time we're done. So settle in because this is going to be a longer one, but definitely worth the time. This is the case of Taya Rada and Roman Zadarov. Wednesday afternoon, December 6th, 2006, was a normal day. Ilana Rada comes home to her beautiful neighborhood in Katzrin. The house sat on a wide road lined with tall palm trees. It was set back from the street by a footpath of flagstones. All of the houses on that street, right? They sat in a neat row. They were surrounded by trees and hills. Just a beautiful place. Now, Katrin was a newer town. It was established in the 1980s with a population of less than 8,000 people. The Rada's house in Katrin was in the Golan Heights area. And because of Katrin's proximity to the Syrian border, Many of the residents there are career military workers, as was Shmuel Rada, Tyre's father. So it was a green, prosperous area with sizable family homes. It was a nice, safe, quiet place to raise a family in Israel. Now, as Elena walks into her home, her normal day began to turn not so normal. She could see that her 13-year-old daughter, Tyre, had not made it home from school yet. There were none of the normal disruptions around that kids make when they come home from school. Like a total fucking mess most of the time. But. So Tyre would typically get home around 2-ish p.m. But today, Ilana didn't see Tyre's school bag tossed on the floor no dirty dishes in the sink from Tyre's after-school snack that she always had. No noises and no Tyre greeting her as she came home. So Elana waited to see if Tyre would show up. But by 4 p.m., she started to worry. Tyre had dance practice that afternoon, so she thought maybe she just went straight to dance class. So Alana calls the community center where the class is held to see if she was there. She wasn't. Tyre would walk home from school with her friends from her neighborhood every day. So Alana's thinking maybe Tyre stopped off at a friend's house. That would be a normal train of thought. Like I raised six kids and 
you know, they were always stopping somewhere. Always. So that's probably where my mind would go to. They live in the neighborhood. Maybe she just got caught up with her friends. But Ilana decided against that. Tyre's friends typically would hang out at their house. So that's not a normal thing for Tyre to do. Ilana calls her daughter's phone over and over, but there is no answer. Like it would ring. It wasn't off, but she just wasn't answering it. Ilana begins to call Tyre's friends just on the off chance that she had stopped off at one of their houses. But no, nobody had seen Tyre since the last period at school. So as minutes turned to hours, there was still no sign of Tyre. No communication either. No texts, no calls. So Alana calls her husband and Tyre's father, Shmuel, and explains to him what was going on. So he gets his adult sons and together they rush home. The family calls everyone they know and explain the situation. So family, friends, and even strangers took to the streets of Katherine to search for Tyre. They searched everywhere they knew of her to be. Surrounding fields, you know, everywhere that they thought she could have possibly been or had been before, but they had no success. So with no success there, they head to the school, which was the last place that Tyre had been seen. Ilana and Shmuel begin to panic. It was already dark outside and very cold. The police had been called and were heading to Nofi Golan High School in Golan Heights. So at 7 p.m., a search party of friends, neighbors, and the Rada family enter Nofi Golan. Now, I don't know how they got into the school like that after hours. If there had to have been someone there to let them in. I mean, I'm sure the school wasn't just unlocked, right? But I, they didn't say how they got in. But they were there. They got in. So they split up and they start searching the school, right? The dark empty hallways classrooms they're everywhere eventually they ended up at the girls bathroom on the 10th grade floor the stalls were empty except for one and this stall had the door locked so looking underneath the door they could tell that someone was in there but there was no response to verbal requests or knocking, you know, to have the person unlock the door or open it. So one of the search members went into the adjacent stall and looked over the top. And what they saw was horrific. 13-year-old Tyre oh, was slumped over the closed toilet seat and it was obvious that she had just gone through something awful it was also obvious that Tyre was no longer alive 
Now, an autopsy showed that Tyre died at approximately 1.15 in the afternoon. And this was an incredibly violent scene. Like, blood was everywhere. It was on the walls, the floor, and all over Tyre. She had sustained two stab wounds to the neck, cuts to her hand and chest, defensive wounds, I'm going to guess, and several blows to the head. So, I mean, this was an incredibly violent scene. Within minutes of notifying police, a large crowd had gathered at the gates of the school. And part of that crowd was Tyre's father, Shmuel. He had rushed to the school, but he was not allowed in. It was a crime scene now, so he had to stay back. Which, as a father, and you know your daughter's in there, telling them to stay back, I mean, good luck. Right? Like, no father is going to take that answer. And Shmuel didn't. He tried to force his way through, you know, the perimeter that had been blocked off because he needed to see his daughter's body. But again, the police absolutely refused. The scene was just too gruesome. They didn't want him to see his daughter in the condition that she was in. And rightfully so. One of Tyre's brothers had such a strong reaction to the news of his sister that the police were going to sedate him if he was not able to calm down a bit on his own. So now the community is in a panic. How did this happen? How was a young girl able to be murdered at school? Tyre Rada was born January 4th, 1993, to Ilana and Shmuel Rada in Israel. They lived in Katrin, which was less than an hour's drive from Haifa. Her name, Tyre, had a meaning that she will light up. And that meaning really embodied who Tyre was. She was the youngest child, the baby, and the only daughter. There were a couple years between her and her brothers, Roy and Ohad. And as most brothers are, they were pretty protective over her. You know, people were drawn to Tyre. She was often the center of attention. She loved music and drama and was a talented dancer. Her nickname among her friends was the Queen Bee. She was the leader of her group, the Influencer. She set the trends for her peer group. So what Tyre did, others quickly followed. And that makes me think of that scene in um, Mean Girls where Regina George came out of the locker room with the two holes cut in her white tank top and like made that shit cool as fuck. That just makes, I don't know. I'm not saying she's mean like Regina, but it just kind of makes me think of that that scene like doesn't matter what she did it was going to be cool that type of thing now you would think having you know the looks the brains the personality the talent like all of it is a blessing to have right 
especially as a teenager. But it can also be a curse that can definitely bring jealousy in a group of teenage girls because teenage girls are petty as fuck. (laughs) So I know how teenage girls are and I'm sure you do as well. And jealousy can bring about conflict in any peer group. And this group of girls were no different than any other regular group of girls. But it normally didn't last long and things would kind of go back to normal. Most of the girls in Tyre's friend group had grown up together. So Tyre attended Nofi Golan High School. She would walk to and from the school every day with her friends from the neighborhood. Once she got home, she would call her mom and let her know that she was home safe. I would do the same thing every day when I got home from school, even though my mom worked like four houses down from where we lived. So yeah, but she was always super worried. So I had to call every day when we got home and man, if we didn't. So what was the last confirmable sighting of Tyre while it was at school? So, Tyre, being a teenage kid, had decided to skip her last period class to hang with some friends. They remained on school grounds, which that's actually kind of odd to me, because were there no teachers or aides or any other adults out and about that saw this group of kids just hanging out and made sure that they would go back to class? I don't know. I never skipped school and then stayed on campus. So I was a little confused by that. But it sounded like a pretty typical event for Tyre and her friends. So her friend said that Tyre was in a good enough mood that day and nothing about her behavior or actions seemed out of place. Around 1.20 p.m., Tyre told her friends that she was thirsty and she headed into the main building of the school to get a drink of water. Now, several students saw her going upstairs to the mid-floor where all of the 10th grade classrooms are located. And this was the last time that Tyre was seen alive. So, coming back to that evening... And Tyre's body being found at the school in the bathroom on the 10th grade floor of the school. The community was now in a panic. What happened that led to a 13-year-old girl being brutally murdered while at school? Were all the kids at risk now? Parents didn't want to send their kids to school anymore, and they didn't. At least for a couple days, they couldn't as the school was now a crime scene and it needed to be processed. And it was an extensive scene. Students had been going in and out of that bathroom all day, not at all realizing that behind the locked door of one of the stalls was poor Tyre's body with no one seeing or hearing anything. Now this to me is bizarre because this was a very bloody scene. So, 
I don't get how no one that walked in there didn't see the blood all over the floor. I, I, I don't know because the pictures that I've seen and then the way it was described, there is no way someone didn't see that blood all over the floor. Unless, you know what, I don't even have an unless. I don't know. I'm not sure. Now, typically in an investigation, you start inward and you move your way out. So the people closest to you first and then you move the circle wider. But that didn't happen in this case and the community was confused. They thought police would have focused their attention on the school first. But for whatever reason, they searched the wider area of Golan Heights and Galilee. Eventually, police did get around to questioning the students. They were trying to get a better understanding of Tyre's movements that day. But, I mean, the longer you wait, the more people forget details, you know. They started backwards. Two of the witnesses they spoke to, both of them being students, they knew Tyre, and they said they saw Tyre go upstairs, but that no one was following her. <clears throat> Excuse me. No one was following her. Many students stated that they were in the restroom around the same time as Tyre had been, and even mentioned suspicious details. In fact, between 10 and 12 girls were in and out of the bathroom between 1.30 and 2.10. But for whatever reason, police only questioned five of them. It was strange that in that short period of time, with so many girls in and out, none of them heard the violent struggle that ended in Tyre's murder. Now, it says here that it the girls were in there between 1.30 and 2.10, and the autopsy gave the time of death around 1.15-ish. So she might have already been dead by the time these girls were coming in and out of the bathroom. I, I don't know. Because the 1.15 is very approximate. Now, some of the girls said there was something suspicious, like the presence of an unknown girl with curly hair. The witness was one of Tyre's friends, Nofar Ben David. She claimed to know most of the people in the school and said that she had never seen the girl before or she hadn't even seen her since. So she assumed it was a new student as the girl was wearing a school uniform shirt. Another student said she was in the girl's restroom that afternoon and saw two pairs of feet in the stall where Tyre was found. One was Tyre's Puma shoes, and the other one was a pair of youth size all-star shoes. But she didn't think anything of it at the time and left as she thought there was a bad smell in the bathroom. Another girl 
Tyre's friend, Lee, she actually knocked on the locked door and a voice replied that it was occupied. Now, according to Lee, police kept asking her if the voice was that of a man or of a woman. And she always maintained that it was a female, but felt that the police were never satisfied with that answer. Now, the Rada family was just shocked, as you could guess, right? They had community support and family support, but they were overwhelmed and honestly confused. Who would do this? And more importantly, why? A private investigator by the name of Chaim Sadovsky heard about Tyre's murder on the radio. He had a daughter, the same age as Tyre, and he was personally affected by this case. He was pissed that someone would do this to a child at all, but do this to a child at a place where they're supposed to be safe. So Chaim contacted the Rada family and offered his services to them. Shmuel and Ilana were very grateful for the offer of his services, and they told Chaim everything they knew, their thoughts on what happened, and on the people in Tyre's peer group, including one incident that stood out to Ilana. Several friends of Tyre's had stopped by to offer their condolences, but Ilana thought that two of the girls were acting odd. She saw them move to one side, kind of away from everyone else in the group, and they were whispering to each other. This looked to Ilana like they were discussing something serious and hiding something. And it did not sit well with her at all. So she gives their names to Chaim, and he said that he would follow up. So when Chaim read the two girls' statements to police, the girls that Ilana had given him the names for, he found some inconsistencies. So the PI learned that her friend saw Tyre's backpack in class, but didn't find it strange that she wasn't there with it. Now, in contradiction to her friend saying that Tyre was her usual self on that Wednesday, her teacher remembered Tyre being withdrawn and sad during theater class. And this was typically her favorite class, and it was unusual for her not to participate. So when the teacher asked her, you know, what the problem was, she made a very strange remark. Tyre tells her, because I am afraid of death. Which, okay. That, yeah, is a little shocking, right? Like, why would a 13-year-old be worried about death in theater class? You know? So did Tyre know that she was in danger of some sort? I, did she have a sixth sense about it? I know they say that people know right before they die, right? Like they just, they get that, 
that feeling and they know. So maybe Tyre had that. I don't know. But her school peers also reported a strange story. And it was that Tyre had a stalker. His name was Avi. And he was an 18-year-old from Tiberius. He called her all the time and sent her many text messages. A month before her murder, he said that if Tyre didn't want to be his girlfriend, he would kill her. Then he called to let her know he was coming to Catherine and he wanted to see her. She said she did not want to see him, can't imagine why, and hung up the phone. Later that day, he sent a message saying that if she wouldn't be with him, he would kill her. When police looked into this, though, there was no evidence of any contact between Tyre and this so-called Avi person. So basically, none of this had happened. So why would her friends fabricate this story? Could it have been possibly to draw attention away from them? I mean, I just have a lot of questions. Like, how did she know this person? She was 13, they were 18. You know, how did he get her number, right? But, he, you know, he wasn't a real person. So, would Tyre have made this story up? Maybe just to kind of fit in with her friends was another one of the girls having, like, guy problems and Tyre made it up to fit in. I don't know. It doesn't sound like something that would be in her wheelhouse of things that she would do, but girls are silly, so maybe. But yeah, Avi was definitely not real, and they weren't able to find out where the origination of this story actually came from. Now, when Chaim looked at the evidence he did not think an adult would have used that much force. They wouldn't have had to. Tyre was four foot nine. It just would not take that much for an adult to inflict uh, the harm or injury it would take to kill her. It just, it wouldn't. She was very small. And Hyam felt that maybe two people the same age and height as Tyre most likely were the ones responsible. And other than the two girls, another one of Tyre's peer group kind of caught Hyam's attention. Tyre had an arch rival, a frenemy, if you will. And she was equally as beautiful and talented as Tyre, and they absolutely fucking hated each other, because of course they do. When the school year began, Tyre told her mother that she was afraid. Of what or why? I'm not entirely for certain. I mean, I don't know. Did the other girl threaten her, like, directly? Were it rumors that upset her? Typical teenage girl stuff. Just teenage girls are total bullshit a lot of the time. They just pick at each other. I was a teenage girl and I raised two of them. Yeah. Or was it something more serious? Now, almost immediately after Tyre's murder, this young girl, the frenemy, 
she left town for a couple days. Yet, when the police asked her directly, do you know of any kid who left Katrin after the murder? She said no, even though she herself had left town. I don't put a lot of stock into this. Like, she's just a kid. When she was asked, you know, did she know any kid who left town? She might not have even considered that they were asking about her. And the fact that she left town directly after, I mean, she's a kid. She can't leave on her own. So I have no doubt her parents were completely unnerved by the event at the school. And they got the fuck up out of town for a few days to let the police do their thing and to let things settle down. If she were an adult and she took off on her own and didn't come back, then yeah, major side eye. I'm looking at you, sis. But the fact that her parents took her out of town after an event like that, I mean, that's a non-issue to me. I, I put no stock in that. Now, although in the beginning, police considered the involvement of one of these school students, right? They thought, yes, let's check out the kids as that would be an obvious, you know, thing to do. But, I mean, they took statements from maybe half of them, but they took no DNA samples, no fingerprints, no shoe prints. Nothing was ever taken from any of them throughout the investigation. And, you know, barely any questioning. Police felt by doing so, it would traumatize the girl's further so they just opted not to investigate now this is just one of probably 500 fuck-ups by this police department and I'm being generous by saying only 500 I feel like anyway the police felt at that time like they had a better suspect so they ignored the fellow student angle and this part I'm about to talk about just pisses me off it is so irresponsible and dangerous to just make random accusations like this against people that you have no evidence against because shit like what I'm about to tell you happens and she should know better the school psychologist made a statement to police that she saw the school gardener in the teacher's lounge and in her opinion, this is fucking wild, but in her opinion, and her opinion only, he looked bewildered and disturbed. That's it. Not that he was covered in blood. Not that he had changed his clothes to different ones. Not that she noticed cuts on him or other injuries, right? Just that, in her opinion, he looked weird. Oh, okay. Now, my question is, how many times had she seen him before to be able to make the assumption that he looked bewildered and disturbed? Now, luckily for the gardener, he had an airtight alibi, so police could not detain him. So instead, they focused on another man 
who looked very similar to the gardener. So they just made the assumption that the psychologist, poor lady, was just confused. She confused the two people. Okay. They assumed this. She never identified anyone other than the gardener. And I say identify incredibly loosely, right? Like, oh God, this case is maddening in some places. Now, the man that they're talking about, Roman Zadarov, he was a construction worker at the school. And on December 11th, less than a week after the murder, he was taken in for questioning. Now, I want to say, I do think that everyone should be questioned. Absolutely. But the assumptions that the police make and act on is so scary in this case. Like, it is terrifying. Now, Roman Zadarov was a construction worker at the school. He was laying tile that day in the school basement and had been working there for eh, about a month, maybe. Roman had migrated to Israel from the Ukraine two years prior, and he made a living doing odd jobs in construction. He was married to his wife, Olga. They had met in the Ukraine, and they were high school sweethearts. And I'm going to tell you, Olga, his wife, that's a fucking real one. Oh, She's amazing. Now, when Olga's family decided to move to Israel, Roman decided to follow her, and soon after, they were married. Now, after they were married, they moved to Katzrin. Olga fell pregnant with a son, and in November of 2016, less than a month before Tyre's death, Olga gives birth to their son. Now, at this time, Roman could not work legally. He was working for a contractor as a handyman on the refurbishment of Nofi Golan High School and he was paid cash. As long as he like stayed out of trouble and was quiet, did his work, he was good. And he did stay out of trouble. He was quiet, he stayed to himself, and just did his work. I mean, he wasn't really into socializing. Olga realized that his visa did not allow Roman to work legally in Israel. So she had encouraged him to apply for an Israeli citizenship, which is what he was in the process of doing. And Russian was Roman's native language, and he mostly conversed in Russian. He spoke very little Hebrew. Now, Roman was interrogated for hours on end. From the start, he denied killing Tyre and was pretty confused as to why the police had arrested or detained him, and rightfully so. Now, I'm guessing they did not interview him in Russian, so he was trying to have to follow along in Hebrew. You know, he was there just doing his job. Yeah, again, I think everybody should have been questioned, but this clearly was not, you know, just questioning. Now, while Roman was at the police station being questioned, a search was taking place at his house. During the search, they found pornography on his computer, 
and immediately made the decision that the girls in the pornography were underage. Just immediately, just by looking at them. Yep, they have to be underage. But a closer look showed that they were not, in fact, underage girls, just young, but legal. And there's a million fucking porn sites like that. You know, oh, barely 18 or you know what I mean? Just, oh, God, yeah. Oh, teenage girl. It's, they're everywhere. (laughs) So he's definitely not alone in searching or watching that. Come the fuck on. Roman was also an avid knife collector. And he had knives on display throughout his house. And the police found this to be very incriminating, I guess. Since the majority of Tyre's injury came from a sharp object. And this is just wild because he was a knife collector that incriminated him. It just, ugh. What do they call them when, like, they don't know what they're doing? Is it Keystone Cops? Is that what they say when you're just, like, kind of like a fool police officer? I don't know. I feel like I've heard that before. So, the police also wanted to collect the clothes that he was wearing on the day of the murder. Okay, I would probably say, yeah, they should do that. Unfortunately, though. Roman didn't have them. They were too short, they were ill-fitting, and very uncomfortable. So he had thrown them out. Now this made the law enforcement's suspicious meter go all the way the fuck off. But I just want to say, if their only evidence was legal age internet porn, owning some knives, and throwing out a pair of pants that didn't fit, then 100% I could be a murderer too, right? On any given day, you could find, you know, porn of some kind in my history. I've never cleaned it out. I own knives, and I just cleaned out my closet not too long ago and got rid of several pants that didn't fit. So... I guess, according to Israeli law enforcement, I would be a potential murderer. Now, because Roman had knives and the belief that the school psychologist mixed up the identity of Zadarov and the gardener, he was kept in custody. The DNA samples from the crime scene had been sent to the United States to be tested, and the results had not come back yet. But that did not stop the police from leaking information to the media, and also to Roman, that it was his DNA that matched DNA they found at the scene. During Roman's interrogation, Police bluffed, it wasn't even a bluff, like they lied, right? Like they outright lied. But I guess at this time it would have been a bluff since they didn't have the results back yet. But whatever. 
So they bluffed to Roman that his DNA was a match to DNA at Tyre's crime scene. Now this was done to try and elicit a confession from Roman. But instead, Zadarov declared his innocence and he stuck to that from the very beginning. But his interrogators held their ground. I mean, like they doubled down. They kept telling him it was a scientific fact. So you might as well come clean and tell us what you did. Zadarov told the law enforcement that they were framing him and falsifying evidence. The interrogators mocked him and laughed, saying they weren't the KGB, which, Jesus, that is a bit racist, right? Like, my God. <laughs> and it's mean. Yeah, and like that. <laughs> so they continued on, and they said that things like that don't happen in Israel. Except that they did, and that is exactly what was happening and continued to happen throughout the entirety of this case. So, apparently, you don't have to be the KGB to do shady and illegal shit. Israel appeared to step up to the plate quite easily, it seemed like, right? So, yeah. So... This is really going to set the tone for the rest of the case for Zadarov. Now, the police got tired of Roman professing his innocence and adamantly denying, you know, any type of involvement in Tyre's murder. So they told him to sleep on it and to see how he felt tomorrow. Now, for three days, Roman sat in a small cell that was occupied almost entirely by two narrow bunk beds. So he was put in a cell with a Russian-speaking man named Arthur. He became friendly with him and was very happy to be around someone speaking his own language because he didn't speak Hebrew very well. But the man was a police informant who was contracted by police to try and get a confession out of Roman. Now, this informant, Arthur, he was paid a very good daily wage and promised, you know, more than 3000 in U.S. dollars to get Zadarov to confess. So already the integrity of this confession, I mean, is fucked up, right? Like it is, you can't do that. But in Israel, you can so, but getting Zadarov to confess was much easier said than done. Zadarov was adamant about his innocence and that he did not kill Tyer. He told the informant about his newborn son, who was about a month old at this point, and that he would never risk his family by doing something so meaningless eight days go by Roman still has not confessed to the informant and Roman expresses concern to Arthur that his cell is being bugged now the informant 
concerned that he's going to lose, you know, all the money and the benefits that he's getting, he kind of switches up his tactic a little bit. He tells Roman that because police found blood, he would get a life sentence. Like, for sure, without a doubt, you're fucked. But if he was to confess, he would only get six or seven years, maybe, for manslaughter. So, Arthur helped Zadarov put together a confession that he felt would be believable. Which is, okay. So, I need to stop here because this is fucking ridiculous. If nothing else, the fact that the informant helped him put together a confession, that should be enough for this confession to be thrown out. 100%, that's it. And ruled inadmissible. But, no, 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 not here. Nope. The informant doubles down and convinces Zadarov to say this. This is just, oh my gosh. But, yeah. So... In his confession, Roman is to say that he was an angry immigrant, right? Living in Israel as an outsider, you know, slash immigrant, it made the anger inside of him grow and grow, and eventually he got so mad, the anger overtook him. And on the day of Tyre's murder, he just lost it. He blacked out. His anger wasn't aimed towards Tyre. She was just, you know, a wrong place, wrong time situation. His victim could have easily been a boy or one of the staff members. Now, Zadarov agreed to the confession and added that he sometimes did bad things that he couldn't remember. Roman told Arthur that he once beat his brother so badly but could not remember actually doing it. Then, Roman says to Arthur, maybe I did kill her. It is possible. Oh, what the fuck, Roman? But I know, like, when you're isolated and, you know, you've got the police telling you something and this informant in your ear nonstop and... You know, your mental health is not in the best state because of how you're being held and where you're being held and what's going on. I, I mean, he's not the only one that that's done it. This happens a lot. So Zadarov tells the informant, Arthur, that the kids at Golan Heights taunted and cursed at him regularly, calling him a Russian bastard and... All your mothers are whores? I I don't... I'm guessing they mean like all Russian people's mothers are whores. Not that Zadarov had more than one mother that was a whore. I I don't know. I think it may be in translation. It gets a little, little messed up. The kids also repeatedly unplugged his electric tile cutter and constantly harassed him for cigarettes. Still not a reason to off one of the students. It's just not. Roman sat on December 6th. Tyre walked by and asked him for a cigarette. 
He told her no, and she started to swear at him. Roman said that he ran after her, and when he caught up to her, and at this point, he makes a slashing motion across his throat, you know, with his fingers or his hand, kind of like you would see in cartoons and movies. And he asked Arthur if he would be able to contain himself if such behavior were thrown at him or, you know, insults were being thrown at his wife or sister or his mother's. Roman went on to say, I lost control. I swear. I won't, you know, do work at the schools anymore or kindergartens. I don't want to. Those kids are uneducated. Now, keep in mind, he was not working at a kindergarten, right? Like, this was a, a high school. So, that was a little odd, but, yeah. But odd or not, Arthur kept encouraging Roman, you know, asking him if three minutes was enough for you to finish her. And Roman responded, less. While demonstrating, again, the hand motion of his hand sliding across his neck, indicating that he had cut her throat. He did the motion twice, meaning she was cut twice across her throat area. Now, Arthur asked Roman where he learned to kill like that. He tells him that he learned from the internet, I, I would believe it, and that he read the book, A KGB Introduction to Knife Battle. Now, Roman whispers to Arthur, I thought they would only find her the next day. The truth is, if I knew who she was, I wouldn't have done it. She's the daughter of a friend of a guy I do handiwork for, Reuven. Side note. Reuven Jaina, he did confirm this information. So, he wasn't lying about that. I do also wonder, too, I mean, the cell wasn't bugged, so... I wonder how much of this was Roman's response versus like Arthur taking some liberties with the confession or with saying what Roman had said to him. I mean, we'll never know, but I just wonder. It was at this point that Zadarov had begun to feel that if everyone was saying that he did it, and his DNA was found at the scene. Now, again, he had no idea his DNA did not match the DNA at the scene. But he starts to think that perhaps he did kill Tyre after all. He was starting to believe what he was being told over and over again. But Roman was very puzzled by this realization. He remembered Finishing his day at work late into the afternoon, which was far past the 1.15 time of death that was given for Tyre, and long after she was last seen. And there was no blood on him, but how could that be? 
The scene was so incredibly covered in blood, but not one drop was on Zadarov. His pants had been annoying that day. They were far too short for him, which resulted in him throwing them away. But not because of blood on them. There was no blood on them. And what Roman didn't know was that all of his conversations with his new friend, Arthur, who he trusted, were being recorded by law enforcement on video. So I just wonder, again, if everything that, you know, kind of came out in the confession was something that Roman said, or if Arthur, even though it was kind of recorded on video, maybe added a few things. I don't know. I don't know if it was a 24-hour recording. I'm not sure. But after Roman gave the confession to Arthur, police bring him back the next day for questioning. Now, up to this point, Roman had denied any type of involvement in Tyre's murder. Even when police lied about DNA, lied about Tyre's blood being found on one of his tools, he still insisted that he didn't do it. But now, confused, coerced, and manipulated, Roman gives the police a full confession. Later that evening, he was driven to the school, Golden Heights High School, where he was kept handcuffed and led the investigators up the stairs. Now, he hesitates for a minute outside the bathroom. He then enters the bathroom, and using a female officer, he reenacts the murder on her. The entire time at the school, Roman is being film recorded, including during the reenactment. Now, according to Israeli law, a suspect's confession can be used to secure a conviction, as long as there is at least one piece of corroborating evidence. Now, at Roman's trial in 2007, the state prosecution pointed to several corroborating pieces of evidence. The first, Zadarov's precise knowledge of Tyre's position. Now, he had been told her position after getting it wrong several times. Knowledge of cuts on her hands and chest. He also gave a description of what Tyre looked like that day down to her hairstyle. He also had added other details that were deemed authentic by the state, such as scrubbing his wedding ring with a toothbrush to get rid of the blood and hiding his headphones under his shirt so he didn't get anything on them, meaning blood, I guess. They also added that his confession had two voices. And that was meant to imply that he wanted the police to think of him one way, innocent, while also being able to unburden himself in private, that he was guilty. Now, in September of 2010, Roman was convicted unanimously by all three judges with them saying his testimony was full of lies, manipulations, and inconsistencies. Yes, well, because he was innocent. So, yeah. 
Now, Raviv Drucker, a veteran journalist for Channel 13, he called it one of the strongest convictions we've had here, which is so fucking wild to me because he was innocent. So, okay. Now, Tyre's family was not at all about this conviction. At all. They wanted more evidence, like concrete forensic evidence. They had a gut feeling that Roman was not their daughter's killer. Tyre never smoked. In fact, she hated cigarettes and the smell of smoke. It was very unlike her to insult anyone, let alone someone older than her. So, for police to present a scenario of Tyre asking for a cigarette, and then when she doesn't get one, she curses and makes insults. I mean, it made no sense to the Radas. They actually thought it was pretty ridiculous. Now, Ilana said she doubted almost immediately that Roman was the killer. There was no forensic evidence that linked him to the crime scene. He had no motive to kill Tyre and no history of violence at all. So two weeks after Tyre was murdered, the police come to the Rada residence to let them know that, you know, Roman was the guy. Now, Alana asked them all kinds of questions and, you know, it was at this time they didn't really mention Roman's name, just that they had a suspect. But just a few hours later at a press conference, you know, they announced Roman as Tyre's killer, which is kind of odd because they were just at Ilana's house and they said, yeah, we got a suspect, but you know. And she's asking him questions and trying to get information. And then all of a sudden, like, boom, case is closed. So it was at this point that Alana suspected something shady was going on. How did all of this happen so fast? And why had they not told her any of this just a couple hours ago at her house? So this was hard for Alana to accept because of the lack of evidence. They didn't have anything that showed Roman was involved at all. Alana said this moment, this, you know, when their lies, meaning the police, and my doubts started. So she never believed that Roman was responsible. And the rest of the country was also unconvinced. But despite no evidence, Roman was convicted of the murder. And even though he had recanted his confession the very next day after giving it, you know, they still kept it in evidence. He recanted through his lawyers, Gail and David Spiegel. Now, the Spiegels were known as like a powerhouse set of lawyers. Think Johnny Depp's lawyers in Depp v. Heard or oj's dream team like they were on that level of defense roman was sentenced september 14th 2010 by the nazareth district court but immediately his lawyers started the appellate process and twice the supreme court held up the conviction 
Okay, now I'm going to go over the details of Roman's first trial now. And this trial gives corrupt an entirely new meaning. Now, the second that the Spiegels took a look into Roman's case, they knew he was innocent. They were convinced he had been forced to confess to a murder he never committed. Even though, <clears throat> sorry, I'm suffering from a cold. I'm trying to get through this. So I apologize if my voice breaks every now and then. Okay. Even though Roman's confession had been recanted the day after he gave it, he still had to stay in remand until his trial the following year. Now, the trial began July 2nd, 2007, but the prosecution was no longer going with the angry immigrant angle. And Tyer wanting a cigarette and verbally accosting Roman when he said no, even though that was what Roman had confessed to, right? But no, 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 no. The state decided to switch up theories and his motive. They were now claiming that Roman had suffered sexual abuse when he was eight years old growing up in the Ukraine. And the trauma he had endured as a child came back to him while he was working at a school. So when the kids kept pestering him, he just snapped. Now, what in the actual fuck? Like, there's absolutely no evidence of Roman being sexually assaulted as an eight-year-old or in any age-year-old. Like, that's insane. And they are trying Roman based solely on a confession of being an angry immigrant. So how are they able to change their theory and use none of this, you know, bought and paid for confession? And we're just able to make up a story with absolutely zero corroboration. And this is just scratching the surface of this trial too. Like, unfortunately, it gets worse. Way worse. According to a police witness, they had DNA placing Roman at the scene. But they didn't have that. And this was an outright blatant lie. They had not received the DNA results back from the United States yet. When it did eventually come out that the DNA, in fact, did not match Roman, his defense team was ready. The Spiegels argued that the size of this crime scene was so small, so it was 28 by 55 inches for the people in the States, or 70 by 140 centimeters, for everybody else. It was such an enclosed space with an abundant amount of evidence, blood, hair, footprints, you know, etc. It would be damn near impossible for anyone to commit such a violent and physical murder without leaving any traces of themselves behind. But no trace of Roman was found at the scene at all. Like nothing. Police also took clothing and household items from the Zadarov residence during a search warrant and had them thoroughly tested. They even took apart the washing machine to look for traces of blood. But again, 
there was absolutely nothing that linked Roman to Tyre or the crime scene. Three hairs were found on Tyre's body, uh, belonging to three different people. So when the DNA results did come back from the United States, it was inconclusive. But none of the three hairs did belong to Zadarov. And of the 60 fingerprints that were found at the scene and collected, not one matched Tyre, nor did one match Roman. So they collected 60 fingerprints, none of them matched the victim, and none of them matched the alleged perpetrator. Now, Roman's defense team, the Spiegels, claimed that Roman had a solid alibi. He was at the school gate speaking to his employer on his cell phone at 1.23. Two security guards saw him on the phone and verified his alibi. Roman waited at the gate for a delivery of tile cement and returned to the schoolyard at 1.30. A pathologist set Tyre's time of death sometime between 1.30 and 2. Now, I also have seen it set at 1.15, so I'm not sure which one it is exactly. I believe I saw 1.15 more often than the 1.30 to 2 p.m. time frame, but I'm not really for sure which one it was. Now, Zadarov was seen in the canteen, which I'm guessing is what Americans would call a cafeteria. So he was seen there um, acting normally and he had no like tears, dirt, blood, none of that on his clothing. After that, he was working in the basement, putting tile down for the rest of his workday. He returned home about 530 Typical day for Roman. Now, the prosecution pointed out that nobody could confirm if he was in the basement or not during that time. But none of that mattered because Roman confessed. But the police weren't even using the details of Roman's confession. So I just don't know what's going on with this case. (sighs) But the Spiegels were not backing down. Like, they pointed out all of the inconsistencies with Roman's confession. And by inconsistencies, I mean everything he flat out got wrong. Everything. So, get ready for this because it's pretty wild. And honestly, unbelievable that this could ever be taken seriously as a real confession and used against him in court. Now there were so many facts that Zadarov got wrong during the reenactment and from interrogation tapes. It's super clear to see that investigators were asking him leading questions. Police said that he knew things that only the murderer would know, like where he stood when he killed her. Also, Zadarov is right-handed but evidence showed that the stab wounds were inflicted by a left-handed person. But in reviewing the interrogation tapes, 
Zadarov's legal team were able to see that every single piece of privileged information was given to him by the police. And I'm going to say as a left-handed person, I could not kill someone with my right hand. Well, maybe I could, but it wouldn't be like my go-to side to use, right? And in that stall, he would not have been forced to use his non-dominant hand. There was enough room for him to use his right hand. So, I mean, that right there, it, yeah. But we're going to keep going. So, just as an example of what the police kind of fed to him, his interrogator asked Roman in what position he left the body. Now, Zadarov showed them by lying down on the floor. Now, this was incorrect because the body was slumped over the closed toilet. Her body was leaning against the wall. But the officers guided him until he got it right. Zadarov also could not say where she was cut at, eventually guessing that it was on the torso beneath the waist. Now, police were hoping to hear about the cuts on her wrist, as it was a very deep and significant cut. Now, Roman showed how he slashed his victim's throat. But, again, the autopsy concluded that it had been cut from the other side, from a left-handed person. He also stated that he used a smooth blade knife, his utility knife. But, Tyre's post-mortem examination clearly showed that the knife that was used to kill her was, without a doubt, a serrated knife not a smooth blade knife. Now, the confession gets even more muddled. During the reenactment at the school, Roman leads investigators to the wrong bathroom. Now, the officers guided him, you know, to the correct bathroom, and they stopped for a while outside of the bathroom and they're just kind of looking at Roman kind of tapping their feet like hey this this one right like kind of tipping their head because he didn't know where the hell it was so eventually after standing in front of the correct bathroom for a while kind of giving him cues that this was the place he should be he takes them inside Now, there was still crime scene tape on the door, and anybody could see that was where the crime had taken place, but he didn't even put that together. Now, once inside, Zadarov was asked to show them how he got out of the locked stall, and without hesitation, he climbed out by bracing both sides of the stall before he jumped over the locked door, but partial footprints at the scene and these were not Zadarovs, they did not match, were found on the toilet seat on top of the tank lid and on the wall to the adjacent stall, showing that the killer climbed to the next stall, the one next door, and not over the locked door of Tyre's stall. Now, the prosecution presented evidence that a bloody footprint on Tyre's jeans was consistent with Zadarov's salamander shoes. 
significantly, there was no blood on the shoes, right? The scene was so bloody, there was no way he could have been in that bathroom stall and not get blood on his shoes. But despite there being absolutely no evidence linking Zadarov to the crime conclusively, he was still convicted and sentenced to life in prison. The court felt that his statements were full of lies and manipulation, and because of this, they added the additional charge and conviction of obstructing police investigation, which is fucking crazy. So I don't know if they felt like the initial confession that he gave, he intentionally provided them the wrong information, and this new bizarre child sexual assault theory that they came up with at the trial was the real uh situation that happened or I'm I am very confused as to what exactly they were saying about the confession that he gave because their theory that they presented at his trial didn't match any part of the confession that Roman gave the police. So, yeah. So, he's convicted. But later that year, Ilana files a position, a petition, asking authorities to reopen the investigation into her daughter's death. And it was denied. Now, Zadarov was sentenced to life in prison by a three-judge panel, and this was headed by Judge Yitzhak Cohen, who stated that he had no doubt that Roman was responsible for Tyre's death. And at that point, Ilana was openly stating her distrust in the court, the prosecution, and the police. Because Ilana had started to suspect that it was students at her daughter's school that were actually responsible for Tyre's death. And for some reason, Ilana had felt like her death was part of a satanic ritual. And I'm not sure why she felt that way, but she did and she felt very strongly about it. So, needless to say, Alana did not believe that the convicted Zadarov was the killer of her daughter. And even though it was not looking great for Roman, his defense team kept fighting for him. So in March of 2013, the courts agreed to hear expert testimony on behalf of Zadarov by his defense team. So they brought in pathologist Dr. Maya Foreman Resnick, and she testified to the type of murder weapon and trauma injuries that had been made to her head. Now, Dr. Maya testified that Tyre's injuries were most definitely made with a serrated knife and not a utility knife, like Zadarov claimed in his confession. The second expert that they brought in was a footprint expert named Bill Bosniak. Now, Mr. Bosniak was flown in 
to the forensic lab to study the bloody footprint on Tyre's jeans. A footprint that, according to Mr. Bosnick, wasn't a footprint at all, but was actually the imprint of Tyre's cell phone from inside her jeans pocket. Now, at the crime scene, there were three footprints left behind. All of them were made in Tyre's blood. One on top of the toilet seat, one on top of the tank, and one on the wall. So, prints were taken from all of the rescuers and first responders and the searchers, everybody who had been at the scene. And none of those matched the three prints. And I just want to reiterate, they also did not match the salamander shoes worn by Zadarov. So despite this added evidence on top of all the other evidence proving that Roman had not committed the murder, his conviction was still upheld. The court said that they did not find the expert testimony credible. In fact, the judge said in his estimation, he could tell by just looking at the mark that it was, in fact, a shoe print. Get the fuck out of here. I mean, talk about the arrogance and overinflation of this man's ego, right? I mean, just ridiculous. Now, this case started to stir up major discussion in the legal circles in Israel. Law professors and media were shocked and they were very critical of the fact that a man was sent to prison with absolutely no evidence linking him to the victim or to the crime scene. And don't even get me started on that ridiculous confession. Now, Dr. Chen Kugel, a forensic medical expert, he was asked by the prosecution to give um, an affidavit to back up Zadarov's confession that he used a utility knife to kill Tyre. But Dr. Chen didn't agree, and instead he told the truth that he agreed that the murder weapon was a serrated knife, not a utility-style knife. So, clearly, the state, they didn't want to call him to testify, right? They took him off the witness list. But what they did instead, and get ready for this, during the trial, the prosecution implied that Dr. Kugel's report supported the prosecution's case. So, by implied, I mean that they outright, blatantly lied again. No report from Dr. Chen was produced. Just, oh, hey, trust me, you don't need the report. Nope, no, no, I'll just tell you what it said. No big deal. And it fucking worked. So, I guess... You don't think the prosecution would outright lie as many times as this one has, but I don't know. I would still need to see a report or Dr. Chen Kugel's, you know, testimony personally. 
But no, 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 not these judges. And there ended up being a bit of a scandal involving the presiding judge in this case, Yitzhak Cohen. It turns out he was forced to step down from his judgeship after being charged with sex crimes against minors. Trash. So you'd think just with that alone, it would automatically qualify Roman for a new trial, right? Of course not. Not in this case. Now, enter in the documentary Shadow of Truth, which premiered in March of 2016. Netflix bought the rights to the docu in 2017, making it available worldwide and, you know, kind of drawing similarities to Stephen Avery um, in the Making a Murderer thing. It was actually given the title of Making a Murderer Israel edition. So how did this come about? In 2013, three young filmmakers set out to investigate the various theories of the case. They were inspired by the rise of popularity in true crime documentaries that focused on the miscarriages of justice specifically and exposing them. So they used their four-part docuseries, Shadow of Truth, to show Zadarov as being the victim of over-prosecutorial reach, which I think is the understatement of the year. And they offered up an alternate theory. Now, this is where Olga Kravchenko enters the story. And what a fucking story it is. And we're going to get into Olga in just a moment. So this is where I'm going to stop part one. In part two, we're going to discuss AK and the AH theory, what their involvement was, Roman's second trial, and the aftermath that this corruption caused. <laughs> 